Hello and welcome to this episode of PageCast, the Jonathan Ball Publishers podcast that touches on a range of wonderful books they've brought into being. I'm Joanne Joseph, and today we're exploring Jonathan Ball's entry into the world of audiobooks. They've asked me to host this episode because my novel, Children of Sugarcane, is the first audiobook to be created under this new division of the company. It's an exciting time for both Jonathan Ball's staff and for me, and a little nerve-wracking as we've begun to wrap our heads around what goes into the making and the publicizing of an audiobook. Now, you may know that I've been in the South African media for just over two and a half decades. And during that time, the bulk of my work has centered on news and current affairs, although I did write a nonfiction book, Drug Mealed, a few years ago, about 10 years ago. I thought I'd be the last person to venture into historical fiction. But while researching some of my family history on the maternal side, I discovered a really brave, gutsy woman ancestor, Adelachmi Veronaiken, who came to the colony of Natal in the 19th century. And so began my obsession with that period period in our history and the incredible women, men and children who arrived from India between 1860 and 1911 and came to South Africa. It's somewhat of a forgotten story that I wanted to bring back into the 21st century consciousness and so my protagonist Shanti Manikam and the book Children of Sugarcane were born. Now let me tell you, when you spend nine years slaving over a book, you're mostly just hoping it'll see the light of day. The fact that the book ends up becoming a bestseller or winning a prize is just too much to hope for at the start, never mind the possibility that it'll start to morph into other forms, including an audiobook. If the writing of the book stretches you in several directions, conceiving of an audiobook will stretch you, the publishing house, the technical team, and most of all, the voice artist in entirely new and different directions. One of the decisions we made early on was to use an actress who could fully embody the characters because there's so many of them in Children of Sugarcane and they're quite different. And the one performer who really stood out for us was Roshina Ratnam, a Cape Town-based actress who had a voice like raw silk, gritty and beautiful. So as we prepare to launch the Children of Sugarcane audiobook in just a few weeks' time, the Jonathan Ball team thought it worthwhile for Rashina and me to have a conversation about the making of Children of Sugarcane, the audiobook, to let you in on a few of the secrets around what it took to create this audiobook in response to the growing demand for audio material all over the world. Now, before we chat to Rashina, here's a snippet from the Children of Sugarcane audiobook. Shanti rises in the dark feeling it knit around her, crackling like dry wall. She shuffles out of the small house, not wanting to wake her dreaming daughter. Her heart begins to batter against her ribs, but she only presses forward more deliberately, slightly out of breath, placing one shriveled foot before the other until she crosses the threshold to feel the dew moisten her face. Thick, dark stains the skies over the Madras presidency. The scent of jasmine floats, while birds invoke the morning light. Shanti's eyes moisten at the thought of how far her silences have driven her only child from her. How cruel I have become in my old age, she thinks. She is a small, stubborn blot on the night now, the scratch of sand between her ginger gnarled toes. Day will soon bleach the horizon and she will face the coming dawn, despite the fear she has carried for more than thirty summers. Dawn has always brought loss. And yet, this sunrise feels restorative. The charred sky catches its new flame. She reaches for its warmth, its peace, whatever forgiveness it might offer. 
And as the first surge of daylight spills across the sky, Shanti stands beneath it with the eyes of a child, drinking it in. Port Natal is suddenly with her, the same gash of sky, the smell of cut cane at daybreak, the hands, the faces, the voices that have lived inside her for decades. Memory lives in light, she thinks, benevolence and redemption too. But light illuminates all, even the darkened hollows. The sundial's mad circles have slowed, and the time for concealment has run out. Secrets are wild birds. They cannot be held captive forever. Rashina, I can't believe we're actually at the point where we're talking about a finished Children of Sugarcane audiobook. And, and that sample we've just heard really brings it home to us. It has been a long, painstaking process that had you tied up in studio for several weeks. Yes, I, I can't believe it either. It was definitely a, um, uh, a labor of love. I think when you talk about the book and creating it over nine years, I was very aware of what it took to get to the point of receiving the hard copy of it and then trying to get it into the next level of uh, making it the same but a different form of art. It was it was very challenging but also incredibly fulfilling. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I imagined it to be a little bit, uh, what can I say, exhausting, demanding on your part. Um, it's all very well sitting down and writing a book, but performing a book is quite different. And, and as, as a seasoned performer, of course, we understand stamina is part of your job, whether it takes a physical or mental form. But, but first, just tell us a little bit about your background as an actress and puppeteer and the kind of experience that would have informed the recording of an audiobook like this. Um, so yes, uh, it definitely does take stamina. And I think like uh, with, for me, with all forms of, uh, my theatrical training, the body is the instrument, you know. So warming up when you're doing a theatre show, for me, is the same thing as doing an audiobook. I wake up in the morning, I make sure that I have a good breakfast because you can't have your stomach growling. People don't think about these things. Can't have stomach growling. You've got to feel like healthy. You've got, I go for a run usually before I, 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 I record so that I have oxygen in my brain. I do lots of kind of vocal warm-ups. Um, consonant training, muscularity in the mouth. I also have to have things in the recording studio with me, make sure that my lips aren't dry so that you're not getting like a weird wet or a dry sound. You become hyper aware of what's happening. And so for me, I also, it's important for me to reread the section that I'm about to record. So uh, the way that I prepare for an audiobook is I read the whole book from right. start to finish. I mark and I highlight the whole way through. I do, I mark breaths everywhere that a breath is taken. And sometimes it's an interesting thing because people are always like, oh, do you go with the punctuation? But I generally, I tend to stick to my own rhythm because if I fight against my own rhythm, you'll start to pick it up a lot. It starts to get a bit staccato and a bit kind of unnatural. So I go with my own breath in terms of, center, unless there's something really kind of you, you write so beautifully. And that's another thing I was very, very grateful for. It makes my job so much easier when you have a beautiful text that you, you really are in service to. So marking it, highlighting, figuring out who the characters are, making sure that you've got the ages and the genders correct. You've also got the essence of their characters. Are they selfish? Are they mean? Are they loving? Are they open? Are they kind? All of these things can sit in different spaces vocally, in the body, as well as in the throat and the mouth. So that was how I started to prepare it. 
And before I jumped into the studio itself, I would always read the section I was about to do, make sure that I was fresh and maybe I would find something new and I'd recircle it and then go in and do my best to try and service the script. You know, it's amazing. It is. It reminds you that, that your process is actually just as much physical as it is cerebral. Well, one imagines the process of reading to be a fairly a fairly cerebral kind of uh, activity. And yet, I mean, your, your body's got to be in top shape in order to deliver uh, the, the audio exactly the way you want. It interests me because, I mean, for, for starters, Children of Sugarcane was written for the eye, not the ear, right? And yet you have to delicately, transi- delicately transition that text via your performance into an auditory text. How do you go about doing that? It's an interesting question. I haven't actually like consciously thought about it. I think because I'm an actor and a performer, I, I tend to dramatize anything <laughs> I read. I, the way that, uh, you know, you, you talk about the characters coming to life in your own head. For me, when I read something, I tend to hear the musicality of it. Um, and so, yes, the way I read it versus the way I, I hear it happens naturally when I speak out aloud. So if I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds like a that's the right kind of energy or rhythm or pace at which something is supposed to happen. Again, for me, I come back to being informed by the text. If the text info- gives you very clear pointers as to where you're going, that's quite an easy transition from being read to being read out aloud. I mean, th- there are, of course, these verbal cues that 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 I'm offering you as a writer of the text. But ultimately, what arguably carries off the audiobook is your interpretation of the novel through your own re-encoding of the text with your voice and interpretation. How did you settle on your version of Children of Sugarcane? Because I'm quite sure every reader who reads it, aloud or not, is re-encoding the text in their own way with their own subjectivities. How, how do you come upon the Rashina Ratnam version that is eventually going to be the audio version that goes out into the world? I guess I, for me, I would start with trusting the fact that you chose me, right? Uh, I know that you auditioned a bunch of other people. There were other people in the pool. And out of the other people, you chose me. And so by trusting that, what I had to offer is my own voice, my own uh, tonal quality, my own um, uh, interpretation of something. And so uh, by trusting that, I'm not kind of trying to be someone else or something else or yeah, put on a performance, but come from a place of authenticity. I didn't have to reinterpret it. I just almost imbibed it, yeah, if that yeah. makes sense. I allowed it to come in and come out of me uh, and purely by trusting the fact that you chose me and I went with what I have to offer. There are also technical aspects very few readers would imagine that you struggle with as an audiobook reader. One of them is font type, there's font size, and I imagine several other technical details which make demands on you as the voice artist. So uh, yes, we did have a little bit of a struggle with that. And uh, it's something that I, I definitely think is very important for me. There are certain fonts that I find very difficult to read and lead to more mistakes um, when I read them font size. So I happen to work from an iPad. I tend to work, I prefer backlighting and a, and a, and a font that's a little more spaced out with um, not as um, busy as certain fonts can be or not as tight uh, because you're reading you almost go into a, a trance-like state when you are reading in a book. You're, you're, you're hyper aware of what you're saying. You're listening to your own voice. So there's a thing of like, 
I read ahead ever so slightly mm-hmm. on the sentence sometimes. And if the font is not right or the right size, sometimes that can lead to me almost filling in the blanks, the brain kind of filling in blanks that aren't necessarily there. And you know that because I had to, I had quite a few pickups that I had to do. It's not a the, it's an it. So, you know, it's a strange thing like that happens. So uh, I also have to say that this is the biggest book that I've ever recorded, the longest book. For me, if we talk about uh, the challenge was this is a marathon, this is not a sprint, you know, and how does one keep the same kind of energy feeling um, throughout the book? How do you keep that consistent? How do I keep my uh, myself um, fresh and, and engaged the whole time? There's also another thing which are, which a lot of people, um, I, I, my other friends who are uh, actors and stuff, I've got a friend of mine, I was like, oh, I love audiobooks. She was like, I hate audiobooks. <laughs> she goes, I find them too tiring. I find them too overwhelming. And for me, one of the things that people don't realize is because I, t- I record by myself, uh, I have a little st- a setup under my stairs, is that I also have to self-direct and mm-hmm. self-edit. So not only am I aware of like trying to be giving the best performance possible for the text and read for meaning, but also read for feeling, I also have to go, is that a strange sound? Did I pop there? Is that a bird too loud? Did I make sense there? Oh, I don't like that particular version. I'm going to give that another. So that for me is very challenging when you have to be almost three jobs at the same time of editing, directing, and uh, performing all at the same time. And and of course, I mean, something that goes without saying, but perhaps isn't that obvious, is that it has to be word perfect. There are a couple of examples where you phrase things in a way that I felt were better than the way I'd written them. And I said, well, maybe we should just leave them like that. And you said, no, absolutely not. It has to be word perfect. I think, you know, I mean, I keep coming back to there are people who engage with audiobooks and text differently. You know, this idea that there are some people who read the book alongside yes. the audiobook. There are people who have a process of like, oh, this is what I read and that's not the same. And so again, I come back to you created something. And for me to be as true to what you created is first prize. There is, of course, there's, I mean, I worked with some other authors, authors who have changed stuff, you know, and who have kind of adapted. And But for me, your work of nine years is what I wanted to get as perfectly as possible out in an audio. Yeah, that, that is the ultimate compliment and respect. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I, you spoke a little bit, a bit about your process and the idea that you actually have to remain, even with a book this long, you've got to remain consistent in your delivery. Uh, and make sure that you're performing at exactly the same level every day. I mean, I can only imagine how much those daily recording sessions began to impact on your voice. How long can you spend in studio at any given time? How long did you spend at any given time while trying to preserve the same vocal quality throughout? So for me, I wish I was a little more, um, you know, uh, stronger athletically muscularity, uh, muscularly than some other voice artists. I personally and our company tends to work in two hours, max three hour sessions. The voice does get tired after a while. There's some artists who can do an eight hour session with like an, like an afternoon lunch break. I can't. And it's not even about my voice so much because I tend to, not push vocally. Uh, I sit in quite a comfortable space. It's more about the brain and the cere- like the the brain kind of working over time. The words start to swim together. I start to kind of like lose focus, 
I sometimes develop headaches, you know, because you're like hyper-focusing. In order for me to be fresh and do the best performance possible, I do a max of two, two and a half. You know, there was an interesting story about an audiobook reader who lost his voice and then brought a lawsuit against the company who, um, who who actually engaged him because he was recording for four hours a day. But But you can well imagine the impact of four hours of almost seamless reading on a human voice. It's, it's a lot to ask, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would be very careful about that. You know, I would, um, it's definitely something that I, again, I come back to this idea that uh, as an, an actor and a performer, I am the brand, mm-hmm. you know, so it's my voice, my performance, all of those things. And we have to uh, be very careful about that. I mean, as a puppeteer, I also have to be super careful um, around my hand about warming up properly because one sl- slight tweak or twist of a door handle that goes in the wrong direction and I can't work it's done. It's tickets, you know? So just like, you know, the vocal warm up. it's such a, it's such an important thing to do. I, I hope that he managed to <laughs> either get some money or find his voice. <laughs> well, Rush, I want to talk a little bit about the issue of positionality, because of course this comes up when you're recording an audiobook. who's going to record the audiobook? Should it be the author? Should it be a performer? What community should that, that actor or actress come from? Um, do, do they need to have some kind of connection to the story uh, from a cultural point of view? Um, and, and that for, for us was quite an important question. And you coming, perhaps coming from your background, or maybe that's an assumption, seem to connect with the text from the very beginning, which not every reader, audiobook or not, does. I mean, do, do you think your family history or identity had anything to do with the connection you had to the novel? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, from the word go, like I, I, I know the smells of the sounds. I know the green of the, the bushes. I know the rivers that you're talking about. Um, my parents are Sri Lankan. I've been, you know, back home. I have a very kind of rich connection to, to, to the country, the home and my family there. Um, I, uh, not only uh, on a personal level, but also in terms of social and cultural and artistically, like I've read, there's so many books that come from my di- diaspora that I I just get, I understand it. And I think that for me, again, I come back to the characters, like there are certain uncles that I'm like, I, my uncle was like that <laughs> you know? or my neighbor. And I didn't, there's, it's not a far reach for me. And I, it was so interesting when I was reading it, I was just like, oh, that's, I, I already was mining my own personal experience to kind of put into the book and kind of go, oh, the, you know, that kind of sounds like auntie so-and-so that has a flavor of so-and-so. And I totally like, yeah, raided my own personal <laughs> life to come and help, you know, because I, f- I feel for me that often helps with the authenticity of something, you know, it's when it comes from a real place for me, it helps uh, give more meaning and depth to yeah, other kind of cultural treasure chest that, that you're mining for, for this information. Yes. <laughs> We, if you remember correctly, had to make some tough decisions at the beginning about accents, for example, Mm. and how you were going to tackle those. Uh, Because the book, of course, has a number of accents from a range of communities in rural India, urbanized India. We've got working class British accents, upper class British accents. And of course, all of those accents are slowly evolving into what will become recognizable South African accents in time, whether they're the Indian South African accent or dialects of, of, of that accent. How much did you grapple with, first of all, the, the decision as to how you were going to execute those accents? And secondly, the performance of those accents? So I think 
having had experience with this before, um, to read a full book, especially of this size in an accent would have been incredibly challenging. And I think that there are some actors and some voice artists who are capable of doing that, of kind of sticking with an accent the entire way through. I wasn't sure if I was necessarily up to that challenge. I felt if I was able to perform in my own authentic voice that I could service the text much better. Jumping in and out of uh, accent was very challenging. And I'm really grateful to the guidance that you gave, you know, in terms of holding that. Yeah, to, to be able to go to these different spaces and the evolving of things, like I was hyper aware that I had to make some very clear choices. One of the big things that I, I've learned about doing audiobooks is that whatever choice one makes, especially in a book this size, is to have an Excel sheet of your mm -hmm. characters, of the vocal choices that you're making, the emotional choices. So you have everything. So uh, it's Bob. Bob has a very deep and like resounding voice. He is sad and slow and his consonants are slightly lisped. Whatever it is that you have these descriptions, because as you realize when we came back to do the pickups, it's very important to have, oh, because who is Bob? When was the last time I did Bob? Bob was like 60 pages ago. So to have those things uh, was very important. But also, again, it comes back to personal taste. There are some people who like an audiobook that is completely not theatrically mm. performed that is read in the voice of the uh, of the narrator the entire way through with some very slight shifts vocally um maybe slightly higher for a woman and maybe slightly lower for a, for a man uh, but generally that the that the narrator stays in their own voice there's some people who prefer a, like a radio drama mm. <laughs> of an audiobook with full kind of full formed of like piratey, whatever it is, you know. Uh, for me, I personally like to split the difference. Um, again, it comes back from my, my own background as a performer. I enjoy different characters. And when I slip into who they're speaking and how they're speaking, it helps me access their internal emotional world. And so I was very grateful that I had the challenge to do that. And when you have accents, sometimes it's a very quick key into going straight into the character and understanding where they are and what they come from and what their intention is. See, I think I actually broke the rules there um, and, and I was a bit naughty. I cheated by including a lot of dialogue alongside the prose. Uh, there are large tracts of prose, of prose, of course, but there shouldn't be as much dialogue as there is in this novel, theoretically anyway. Uh, but but the characters in in Children of Sugarcane were, were often chatting away madly in my head, and and what ended up on the page was what I was transcribing. It was a conversation between them, or an argument, um, or a lighter moment that I was transcribing. Do you think that your your training as an actress came to the fore in terms of um, of managing those large tracts of dialogue, which perhaps shouldn't all have been there in the first place? <laughs> I wanted to say thank you for all that dialogue. <laughs> Someone appreciates you. Your editor and I can have a chat. <laughs> Obviously, coming from different places, I loved the dialogue. I love dialogue. For me, dialogue um, just goes into a place of flow, you know. And because you again write so well, and you, the internal world of each of the characters is so clear, to be able to switch between the two for me was was almost like playing music. You know, it was like, it was, oh, the, the musicality of this conversation of what was going on or, uh, you know, pleading for, to somebody or uh, confronting somebody. I love that dialogue. So, um, again, I mean, I, I would love to ask you, like, I'm nine years is a very long process, but to how you would go from your head to the page, I would even begin to understand that the fact that it was there on the page and I got to play with it, it was 
Amazing. Uh, so yeah, I love the dialogue. Great change. <laughs> <laughs> Write another book. Lots more dialogue. Well, yeah. <laughs> After nine years, they do start uh, taking on a life of their own, and and you do end up transcribing rather than manipulating their dialogue. You know, and and that that's how it came about for me. But is there a particular character that you grew attached to performing more than any of the others? Perhaps that's a very basic answer, but Shanti from the word mm. word go because just. She's so full and so rounded and so um, complex and vulnerable and strong and uh, broken and a wonder woman. She is so many things at different points in her life. I mean, the three that stand out for me would be Shanti, Devi and Mustafa, because for me, those are the three most intimate relationships that happened. And I love intimacy. So the intimacy between Shanti and Devi and this beautiful friendship and eventually what happened, I mean, was breathtaking when I read, when I read towards the end. I, what I love about a book is when you move to tears. <laughs> you know? I love a book that, you know, I was moved to tears and I was like, okay, when I perform this, I have to just keep it together. Watch. <laughs> Keep it together, <laughs> which is, is it's a beautiful thing. And I mean, this idea, I have, it's so interesting because I so empathize with Mustafa, a man who falls in love and this idea of a perfect love that is not perfect. And the, the, the high expectations that we place on other people sometimes that are unattainable and the loss that happens because we, we clutch onto something being the way that we want it you know, and that he loved her in the way that he could, but he didn't know her and his past informed him making different decisions. Um, so I really, for me, that was really moving. And that, so those three um, relationships were, and, and characters are the ones that still sit with me on a cellular level, you know, and I was very, very, very grateful to be able to do that. Well, you're very kind and you're very um, positive and, and, and very complimentary about the text, which I really appreciate. But, but you know, I, I can take a bit of pain as well. Is 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 there a part? Uh, is there part of the text? Are there parts of the text or the characters or, or situations that that you found difficult to perform or that you disliked about the text? I mean, there's definitely some difficult parts to the book. Um, some difficult, like ho- horrible and and violent things that happened, and yet these things have happened to you, our ancestors, to people that we know, to, you know, we carry it in our blood and our DNA. Um, I, 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 I don't have anything bad to say about it. In fact, for me, if I'm going to carry on like waving a flag of delight, for me, representation is so mm. important. And as Asian women, to have stories written about us, for us, through us, there is not enough of that. And so to have a book that I don't need to, that I, that, that is me is an incredibly powerful thing. And I, um, I'm so grateful for it to be out there and existing in the world and to be a part of that process because for a very long time, I felt like I was always on the outside of these spaces or other people's stories or, you know, everybody else's getting to be out there and to be a part of this for me is just, yeah. So no, I don't have any <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm, I'm very glad about the representation aspect as well. Um, I was with an artist, Serena Woodley Anderson, on the weekend who, um, who, who honoured me with an artwork on me. 
something I least expected. Nobody's ever offered to do that before. But she, again, also, as a woman of Indian descent in South Africa, spoke spoke about representation. And I think it's suddenly starting to occur to me that that the book is taking its place in the canon um, as as a form of representation for for women of Indian descent. I mean, we, we also had a lot of fun around, apart from the serious stuff, uh, around the pronunciations of the names of places, characters' names, how you pronounce them as a person of Sinhalese descent versus how I intended for them to be pronounced as a writer of Tamil descent. I mean, I I suppose it's a a representation also of, of the melting pot that we are, a real reminder of how heterogeneous India or the subcontinent and its people and its tongues are. Absolutely, yeah. It was so interesting because I thought, oh, no, I'm saying this properly. And I was like, well, am I saying this properly? <laughs> and I was, I'm so grateful that you made yourself so available to my late night voice notes of like, or oh, please, can you, or long lists of character names and places and places you can, you know, names. But also, interestingly enough, me thinking that I was pronouncing something right. And you were like, mm. I was like oh, you can pronounce that differently? Oh, okay. <laughs> Because usually when I'm in doubt, I'm just like, you know, I, I, I'll Google it or something like that. And it was it, it was an incredible learning experience. And I'm, I'm really like, again, for me, every process is about learning and putting things into my pocket for the future. And so I love that. For me, I never took it as like, oh, um, oh, she's being whatever or that's not right. This is right. I was like, oh, there's different ways to do and say everything. And I, again, I come back to language and how, um, you know, it evolves and changes and accent and culture and um, tomato, tomato, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff that exists in the world. And neither is right or wrong. You know, they're, they're both right depending on the time and the context. So. Yeah, love that. Love but it. There's also uh, there's there's one character in particular, and and it made me realize, uh, you know, she, she's speaking in such a. This is the character Chinama, who appears later on in the book mm. in the latter half, and and she is speaking in a dialect that is so distinctly Indian South African. Um, mm. But but I realized that that with your history, that that actually, that that dialect was quite difficult to access in a way. She's using language like, they came way here, or, you know, things that are very distinctly yeah. Durban slang or Durban Indian yeah. dialect. Um, and, and that, I mean, right. that, that made me realize that even in the way dialects have evolved on the continent, because I understand you've got Zambian connections as well. Um, and, and I suppose this is part of our, our Indian Africanness, that, that it's, all evolved. The language has evolved quite differently in different parts of Africa, even though these linguistic strains have come through from from India and the other parts of the subcontinent. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, for me, that was definitely uh, one of the challenges. Like I, I struggled with, and uh, I'm not sure if I, I got it down eventually. Is that is is kind of like Durban KwaZulu Natal has a very specific dialect yeah. and rhythm. Jack, I listened to a lot of a lot of. Uh, um, videos and audio and and I was just like I, I I actually had to let it go after a while and kind of go if I try to get stuck in this too much I'm I'm going to trip mm-hmm. myself up so what I'm going to do is make an offer a flavor a pass by um a hint of something um and hopefully like that will be enough for the listener to kind of understand that something uh, that there's a, a shift of yeah. space here um but yeah, they're definitely that dialect thing. It's so interesting when you kind of move through South Africa and go into different spaces and hear, oh, this is where I'm at. This is how people say this or when they refer to different things, you know. It's yeah, it, it is beautiful how it's evolved in Durban. 
Uh, and, and so, so yeah. Rush, I'm really coming coming to the end of our conversation now. Um, we've been fortunate. Children of Sugarcane has been read by many people in many parts of the world. I hear from them regularly. People in the United States, people in Australia and New Zealand, people in India, uh, people in China, you know, pe- people in territories you just wouldn't think of access the book. Um, someone in Denmark is it takes a picture of herself um, suntanning with, with the book in her lap. And I think how on earth did, did this book travel? into your hands, but it somehow does, you know. Um, and, and of course, your voice in this audiobook version will also creep into the ears of listeners in so many different places in the world. What do you ultimately hope to convey to each listener, no matter who they are or where they are? I think, I mean, now that you've made me think about it, I've started to go, oh my goodness, I am going to be lots of people's ears. <laughs> I started getting very anxious all of a sudden. I hadn't thought that far. <laughs> um, when I listen to an audiobook that stays with me, there is a perfect kind of middle point where, or balance where the, where the voice artist is the wave upon which I ride the story. And if they do their job properly, I almost forget that they're there, but they inform my entire emotional reaction to everything that I see, uh, that I hear and feel in the story. So if, and I hope that I do my job well, is that people hear me, but not to the point where I get in the way of the text, but again, that I hold it, that they can stand upon the foundation of my voice and your text and journey along that in a powerful and in an enveloped way. That was what I would hope to achieve. in doing this. I, I'm quite sure that you are going to achieve that. Um, and, and I can't wait for it to get out there into the world. You birth a text and your publisher is your midwife. And there are people who raise their child, if one can continue with that metaphor, and invest in that child. And you, you are one of those individuals who has been that instrumental in um, in taking children of sugarcane to the next level. It's a toddler now and it's out there in the world and, and you are going to you're going to raise it into this young audible story that that hopefully is able to travel out into the world, into the hearts of people. So I want to thank you so much for being part of the process. Thank you for making yourself available for this, this wonderful conversation and for also for your, your profound reflections on what it takes to put an audiobook of this nature together. And Rashina Ratnam has made time. She is actually traveling at the moment. She's, she's in Galway, uh, as I understand it, and she is talking to us all the way from there. But in the midst of her heavy schedule, she has made the time to have this conversation with us and just give us a sense of what it took to birth Children of Sugarcane, the audiobooks. I want to thank you very much for that, Rosh, and for all the hard work that you put into making this audiobook a reality. Rashina Ratnam, actress and the voice of Children of Sugarcane audiobook. And to the listeners of PageCast, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this conversation. I hope it's opened your mind to the exciting world of audiobooks in general. Just think about it in ways you haven't before, if you haven't given it a chance yet. The next time you have to do a boring task like the dishes or uh, go for a run, uh, you know, walk on the treadmill, whatever it is you do that that takes up your time that you can kind of do automatically without thinking about it. And, and you need to pass that time because it's a little bit painful. Think about listening to an audiobook. It will open up 
a whole new world to you. Uh, you know, when you're sitting in traffic, especially in South Africa, with traffic lights out, it's the perfect time to dig into an audiobook and make that journey home a little less painful. So I encourage you to look out for all audiobooks and for the Children of Sugarcane audiobook in particular, published by Jonathan Ball Publishers. It'll be available on all the platforms where you usually find audiobooks. Please download it. Let us know what you think of it. From Rashina Ratnam, from the Jonathan Ball team and me, Joanne Joseph, happy listening. Thank you for your time. Take care. Enjoy the audiobook. Bye-bye.